You're listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. I am Derek, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and it is good to see um, you today on this first Sunday of Christmas tide. So you really have the opportunity here to keep this thing going. You know, that's that's in the you know in the church calendar. You can go all the way to Epiphany if you want. In fact, I'll be leaving my Christmas lights up till January sixth for that reason. Um, but I think our homeowner association makes us take them down after a certain time anyway. <laughs> and this morning we rejoice in the fulfillment of Advent, this longing being fully realized in the light of Christ's incarnation. And our entire purpose is now oriented around union with Christ as we look forward to his return, his next appearing we also standing here at the door of another new calendar year, and I think um, we had higher hopes for 2021. I think I think that's probably safe, <laughs> safe bet. Um, after 2020, we thought, okay, it's all uphill from here or downhill or however you say it. But in many ways, and for many of us, this year was maybe more of the same. There was more loss of life. There pandemic continues. We got to experience devastating winter tornadoes, our neighbors. Racial and political tensions still exist. Now there's economic uncertainty and we've even had a fire in our building that we're still working through. And if anything, 2021 is a reminder that our hope is not in new beginnings, but it's in a person it's in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And our hope rests in a God who says in Psalm 46, Be still. Take a long, loving look at me. Your God who is above politics and tragedy and division and who is above everything you face in the world. That's my paraphrase. The psalmist in Psalm 43 says, in the midst of his afflictions and difficulties, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling, to, to the place of your presence. And John 1.4, the gospel writer says, in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. And then in John 8, verse 12, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light in dark and difficult times. Jesus is the light when we think we're making it okay on our own. And it is by his light that we see light, that we may receive the light of Christ and be transformed by it. This is the transcendent light of truth. And the purpose of this is so that he may work in us and through us to extend the light of truth to a world around us. And so that that glory that was given to him may be given to me and to you. And this is hope and this is purpose when all around us seems out of whack. If you have a physical copy of your Bible or one on your phone, you can turn with me to Paul.
Paul's epistle to Titus. We'll begin in chapter 2, verse 11, and then we'll, we'll run through that thought um, into verse, three of cha- uh, verse 8 of chapter 3. Beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared the first time in the person of Jesus at his advent. And he did two things, bringing salvation for all people, and then in verse 12, training us. He brings salvation and he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, in the midst of our circumstances. This is why he came, to bring salvation and then to give us a way of life, a path for life, a rule for life. So we're waiting for our blessed hope. So the grace of God has appeared, but we're still waiting, in verse 13, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, at his next inevitable coming. In verse 14, what did Christ accomplish the first time? He gave himself for us bringing salvation to us, right? To redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To make us holy and clean for a purpose that he would possess so that we could accomplish good works that we want to do that idea of zealous is the idea that I am, I'm, I'm an active participant in this. I want this. And then verse 15, St. Paul tells Titus, declare these things. Talk about these things. Pronounce these things. Proclaim these things. Preach these things. Exhort and rebuke. Encourage and correct with all authority. Let no one disregard or dismiss or ignore you. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, remind them. So he just told them, he just told him to declare this. And now he says, now now keep declaring it. Keep reminding them to be submissive, humble to rulers and authorities. That's hard sometimes in our day and age. We're good Americans. We don't want to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We resist that. To be obedient, that kind of rubs us wrong. To be ready, eager for every good work. He just said be zealous for these things. This is this, to be ready, not just I'm interested in doing it, I'm willing to, but but being prepared. In verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, meek, And to show perfect courtesy, this kindness and hospitality toward all people. That kind of covers a lot of bases. And in verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days. We were wasting our time in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another, full of discord and disunity. Then verse 4, 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, His incarnation, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, lavishly, Dumped it. He didn't sprinkle it on us. He didn't mist it and make you walk through it. He poured it out on you richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then in verse 8, Paul drives this point home with Titus that what he had just expressed It's true and can be trusted. This saying is trustworthy. What I just told you about what Christ has done, you can take it to the bank. And I want you to insist on these things. So he says, I want you to declare them. I want you to repeat them and remind them often. And I want you to to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, that's us, that have been our need to the Lord Jesus Christ, and recognizing that that's not a one-time. He didn't say, for those who have, we, we, we read it in our modern English and we miss that this is a present active tense. Those who are believing, who believed and continue to believe, who are remaining faithful. We're insisting on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, a life characterized by good actions and ordered around the divine. These things are excellent, worthy of praise, and profitable, beneficial for people. So we lift our eyes this morning beyond our condition and our sin and our need, and we see our King. And we bend our knees to him and we confess him as Lord again. And we strive to follow him faithfully with all of our might. So with this passage as our backdrop, let's pray once more. Lord, that we would live in the light of this decree of God preached to us. Help us to abandon the vain and futile things we cling to. The fears and traumas that plague us and live holy and obedient lives of love as a people born again through the redemption of Christ for good works, purified by belief, confident and secure in him alone. Amen. So in our remaining moments together, let's um, consider how we can be careful to devote ourselves to good works. As Paul said, in Titus 3.8. As a community of faith, as we move into this next year, at the age of six years old, the light of Christ pierced my darkness, but it took another 35 years to fully and really to begin to understand that I wasn't just saved from something. I was saved to something. And like me, maybe you find that it's easy to live a compartmentalized life Marriages, career, hobbies, 
entertainment, faith, all cordoned off and segregated. I know Jesus is Lord of all, but surely not all at once. I'm one way at work, living another way at home, another way at church, another way with friends, and probably only truly me when I'm alone. And frankly, that's the worst part of it. If integrity means complete and whole, all the relating parts working together, then I was experiencing something other than that. So frustrated, even if I could get one of my little compartments going well, they were never synced up because I was out of order. This compartmentalization extends beyond the personal and the relational. In our society, it also manifests itself in pitting entire categories against each other. There's the, the, the world of science that doesn't cross over, and there's distinctions in academia, and, and the arts are, are different, and politics are something else, and beauty is aesthetics are over here, and faith is over here. Like somehow there's a dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. That somehow these things came to be, exist, and are true outside of the sovereign God of the universe. And that's foolishness. All knowledge and all experiencing and all expressions of what is can only be truly understood in the light of Christ. Coming to know Christ is what leads us to understand because truth only lies in him. And a big part of this relates to the justice of God. God is not just about making what is wrong right again. He's not just about making what was immoral moral again. His concern is at a much more comprehensive level. And his work of justification is about reordering or right-ordering what is disordered and out of order. Jesus came chiefly to put things back in order, to reverse the curse and rewind what the demons and Adam and Cain introduced to the creation, sin and death. Without Christ, we cannot understand anything in its proper context. And when we come to know him, he puts things in order. He is the purpose of all things. Anything truly worth accomplishing, fixing, healing, or understanding only comes by and through the light of Christ. And through Christ, we discover a path through mortality back to not just immortality, but to glorification and union with God himself. That's that's what is at stake. So in light of this and what Christ has done and what we know about ourselves, Titus 3 verse 8 instructs us to be careful, to be intentional, thoughtful, purposeful, to devote ourselves. This is a serious engagement and an active participation in good works, in a proper and virtuous life. So as I thought about the urgency of Paul's tone here and the responsibility we have, it made me think of how Pastor Jeremy often admonishes us that we will never fight the drift 
toward God. We will naturally drift away from Him toward justifying ourselves. We try to keep it together or put it back together our way, compartmentalizing and perpetuating the disharmony in our hearts. Earlier in Titus chapter 2, Paul addresses about every category and life stage, every category of human and life stage there is. He's got, he talks to older men, he talks to older women, he talks to younger men, he talks to younger women, he talks to husbands and wives and children and even employees. And he lays out a few rules for them even before getting to what we read today. And that encourages me because this is important enough to get right. Rules help us in about every other way of life. How we play a game, what you should or shouldn't do on a plane, train, or automobile, and even within relationships and marriages in particular, there are written and unwritten rules for how you end up not on the couch. The word rule is both a noun and a verb. Sometimes there are a set of rules that govern the proper way or order of doing something. Sometimes a rule is more generally the will of a sovereign. But in either case, I'm under the authority of a rule, and I either obey it or rebel against it, with the result being order or chaos. I like, uh, like to play cards, and I have been labeled, I think, inappropriately as having an alternative personality. There's a, a card Derek. Apparently there are multiple Derricks, and card Derek is one that manifests in a card game. And um, one of, one of the, I think one of the things that is distinctive about that is that I like to bend the rules, especially in card games, or establish house rules, right? So there's, you know, there's, all, there's, there's room in, in there, but people that play with me don't tend to appreciate that uh, near as much. There have been moments where my wife has physically assaulted me <laughs> in the middle of a card game. Actually, almost every time. As we enter into 2022, I'm asking brothers and sisters that we all take steps together to rightly order our lives around the divine, to fight the drift with more intentionality. Let's allow Christ to rule and consider a few areas of living and acting that serve to undergird and foster this way of life that Paul admonishes Titus so strongly to encourage the believers to walk in. And there are a lot of ways to go about this, these, this thought of intersection, faith, and life, but I want to talk about a few that came to mind this week as I was preparing. And I'm merely asking that we work through these together prayerfully and just listen to what the Holy Spirit would make stand out in your heart. You don't need to write all these down. You don't need to... I'm going to go through kind of seven quick categories. Pastor Jeremy would have had 21. <laughs> but I'm going to... This is grace this morning, just seven today. But just key in on what the Holy Spirit makes stand out in your heart. Do you need to add a rule in 2022 for an abiding relationship with God? And I'm speaking to you as believers. You may need to take that step first. I would encourage you to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Believe him. But do you need to add a rule for an abiding relationship 
with God. Prayer is one of those areas. It was the pattern for Jesus' life and the life of his apostles. Luke 5.16 tells us, but Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. The apostles in Acts 16.13, it's said of them that on the Sabbath they went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Do you need to add a rule related to Scripture in your relationship with God? Reading and immersing yourself in it and then obeying it. Second Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is given by God and it is His inspired Word. It's God-breathed and it's useful for teaching. If I don't know how to do something, I need someone to show me. For rebuking, for showing me when I didn't get it right for correcting, for getting me back on track, and for training, for drilling me in the godly life, in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, fully prepared for every good work. Maybe in our relationship with God, we need to add stillness or solitude This is how you hear from God. And our world is so loud. There is so much noise constantly bombarding us and and trying to fill. And, And frankly, I'm the kind of person that when I get anxious especially, I want to fill that more because I don't want to deal with what's in my mind and my heart. In Luke 4, 42, it says at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Luke 5, 16, but Jesus often withdrew to solitary places. Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. And after an exhausting ministry season, Mark 6, 31 tells us that Jesus turns to his disciples and says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. And maybe repentance is one of these areas to lean in on. This is purposefully coming back to Jesus. And I would add that that's really the definition of faithfulness. So many times we think faithfulness is about being good all the time. Doing it right all the time. That's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is returning to him all the time. It's recognizing the drift and turning back to finding in Jesus what I was looking for somewhere else. That's the life of a faithful Christian. It's not just this pattern of sinning and, and asking for forgiveness and sinning and asking for forgiveness. It's, it's, it's monitoring my heart. It's recognizing my life. And, and keep, I just keep moving my head back. I get distracted. I'm looking over here. I keep coming back here. One of the most beautiful pictures of repentance in all of Scripture is Peter with Christ on the water. That was repentance. Did, did Peter sin against God? Jesus is walking on the water. Peter and the apostles are freaking out because you don't walk on water. They think it's a ghost. And they cry out, Jesus, Lord, if this is you... Ask me to come out. 
Like, let's, let's verify this thing. Let's test this thing. And Jesus says, come. Peter steps out of the boat, and he's walking on water because Christ orders all things. And all things exist by the word of his mouth. And the picture of disorder in our world is water, right? It's molecules that don't, they're so busy, they don't, there's nothing solid, unless you're the God of the universe. And the God of the universe makes unordered things, unsolid things, solid. And so Peter steps out of the boat and walks toward the master of the universe. And what happens? He shifts his eyes. And just for a moment, he looks at what is seen and it distracts him from what's true. And he begins to sink. And he says, Lord, help me. And Jesus says, you're on your own, buddy. You had one shot. Hope you can get back to the boat. And he just walks around. No, that's not how that worked. He, lifts, he reaches down and he picks him up. Because what did he do? He turned to Jesus to find what he was looking for. Turned back to him. That's the life of repentance. That's the life of a faithful Christian, add that this year. Maybe you need to add a rule for meaningful relationships with others. The horizontal matters. And that maybe, maybe it looks like humility, selflessness for you. Philippians 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And he goes on to remind us how much Christ humbled himself, even to the point of death as one of his creatures. Maybe forgiveness is one of these categories that could be evaluated and added Forgiveness is at the heart of human relationships. It's similar to repentance in that I have an obligation to bear the offenses that come my way because Christ bore all offenses that came his way. And when I defend myself and when I say that is out of line, you went too far, and I withhold my forgiveness. I put myself straight into that place of the unmerciful servant that the parable speaks of, who was forgiven so much and then turns around immediately and demands that someone make it right with him. Something much smaller. Matthew 6 and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of the most powerful sections of scripture you could ever read and meditate on, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's heavy and kind of, that's hard. And it'd be easy for us to say, well, that's kind of that. I'm sure there's context around that. Well, he also embedded it in the model prayer. Father, forgive me my trespasses as in the same way that I forgive others who've trespassed against me. A, a heart of forgiveness says, I will bear 
this burden and extend, I will release you from my judgment because I'm not God and God has already released me from his judgment. If you want a game changer, marital, relational little nugget, live a life of forgiveness. Fight for forgiveness. There have been many times I have had to pray, Lord, I know I must forgive, but I don't want to. And I don't know how. But you forgave me. And you forgive them. So I'm going to let you forgive them and then I'm going to go into you. And I'm going to, I'm going to hide myself in you. And then he changes me and makes forgiveness real. And finally, maybe with horizontal relationships, with relationships with others, we need to seek peace. Romans 12, 12, 18 says, if it's possible, and as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace. Be a peacemaker. That's not always easy either, but as far as it depends on me, I can seek that. Maybe we need to add a rule for hospitality, and this is more than just being good at hosting parties. Um, This is a willingness to receive all in the Lord and as the Lord. Philippians 2.29, in speaking of his friend Epaphroditus, Paul instructs um, the church at Philippi, so then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Honor each other and welcome each other. Also, hospitality looks like putting yourself out there and extending yourself to help. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches, and then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was in need of clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. This is important. We have an opportunity to be the extension of God's healing hand, his comforting voice, and his gentle presence in a very disordered world. Maybe we need to add a rule for the body. Who's the boss? Is your body your boss or are you the boss of your body? It's kind of a way of looking at that. Who controls who? I would encourage fasting. If you haven't ever thought about it, think about it. Because this is purposefully putting your body into a position that reflects your greatest, truest need. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word proceeds from the mouth of God. Christ says, I am the bread of life. And fasting puts me in a position of feeling that need. And Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, in his Sermon on the Mount, and when you fast, don't make it obvious. Do this for the right reason. 
when he was confronted by the religious authorities about the difference between John's disciples and Christ's disciples. He said, John's disciples fast and yours feast. What gives? Who's right? And Jesus says, why would the disciples fast when the bridegroom's with them? This is a time for feasting. But he said, but no, when I depart, when the bridegroom's no longer here, they will indeed fast. Maybe we need to think about the way we eat and rest and play. Remember we talked about this compartmentalization and how that feeds the drift sometimes. 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God because you are sanctified and holy. So whatever you're doing and wherever you're going, you're bringing God's presence with you. Do it for his glory. And an exercise and activity is another one of these areas we could think about. Ten years ago, I was fraying at the edges. I was ridiculously overweight very unhealthy. My lifestyle was crazy, especially as it related to the body. I was on blood pressure medicine. I was going on high cholesterol stuff. I couldn't get off the couch. And everything else was fraying too. I was undisciplined in my spiritual time. Reading and prayer was almost non-existent. Stressed out. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, for physical training, Paul is talking to young Timothy, he says, for physical training is of some value. There is value in this. I'm not separate. My, my body's not separate from my soul or my spirit. I am one thing. And so when I give myself a pass here, I'm at risk in other ways. Maybe I need to add a rule for work and performance. Am I serving, doing my work, my job as unto the Lord? Ephesians 6, verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. He even goes on in these household rules to say, um, don't, um, don't just work hard when the boss is watching. That's also my paraphrase, but it's in there. You can see it. You can find it. As it relates to my job or my work or my career or my identity and performance, remember that we're unworthy servants. Your job and your career is not your identity. Luke 17, 10, for you also, Jesus says, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And that encourages us to seek a greater reward. Lift our eyes, even in your work, even in your job, even in your career, and you're advancing, and you're, trying, you're jockeying for position, and you're trying to get to the next level, whatever that looks like. Seek a greater reward. Paul, or Christ back in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. 
for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you need to add a rule for stewardship? All things are the Lord's. And am I living conscientiously in a world of his resources? We're not to be wasteful. John 6, 12, after feeding the 5,000, and they had gathered everything up, everyone had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather what's left, gather up all the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. Maybe there's a rule to be less wasteful in our lives. Maybe to be more productive. Luke 12, 48, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Maybe there's a rule of intentionality related to resources, stewarding those. In Matthew 25, verse 21, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will now put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Maybe responsibility is where I need to think about this year. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, he says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives or family, especially his own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Man, I want to be responsible. I want to be a good steward of the responsibility he's given me for my family, for my life, my mother, my father. That's real and tangible. It's not another category. It's not just, this is my walk with the Lord, and then there are these responsibilities he gives me. They're all related. Maybe related to generosity. Financial generosity, 2 Corinthians 9. Now he who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And, though, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The purpose, not because I'm supposed to, but because God's glorified and honored in it. And it results in thanksgiving to him. Finally, do we need to add a rule for the day-to-day? Are we redeeming the rhythms of our days and our weeks and our months? This looks like daily union with God, the priorities of time, and schedule. Daniel is one of my favorite Old Testament characters. In Daniel chapter 6, um, he, was, he was in exile and was, had, had achieved the high, high station in Babylon. And people are in, at this point, I think it was Persia. And uh, his contemporaries didn't like him. <laughs> and so they looked for ways that they could set him up to get him thrown in jail or get him killed. And it says they examined his way, his practice, couldn't find anything. Everything, he did everything with integrity, he did everything with honor, and he did everything well. And so they decided we're going to have to make his worship of his God illegal. And so that's what they did. Because they knew something about Daniel. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. Daniel always prayed to God three times every day. Three times every day. He bowed down on his knees to pray and praise God. Daniel bowed down on his knees and prayed just as he had always done. That's after he heard that they'd made that illegal to do. And this is important. It's not just what you pray. We talked about prayer earlier, a life of dependence. But that you set aside 
time for this and order everything else around it. It's a game changer. This daily union with God. Weekly. Weekly sharing a meal with your God. And this is the context of worship in every culture, the ancients until today. Worship is sharing a meal with your God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And in 1 Corinthians 11, as he's talking about how they're kind of making a mess of the Lord's Supper, he says, so my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat the communion together, you should all do it together. It should be done in order, but this should be done weekly. And I would just encourage you, maybe there's a, a rule of making the assembling, of making our gatherings a priority. And not just to be around each other, but to recognize we're sharing a meal with our God together every Sunday. And then there are annual remembrances throughout the year. Making most of Advent, of Christmas, of Lent, of Holy Week, of Easter, Pentecost. These were handed down by tradition and they matter. Christ references the things that you've received and received and heard in Revelation 3. Paul references them in Philippians. Everything you've heard from me and seen me doing. He says the same thing in, Thessal in 2 Thessalonians. Hold to the traditions that I've, you have been taught by us. Because this is, this is an important element of our Christian life. Of our non-dichotomized life. Of our integrated life. We remember through ritual. And this is at the heart of Christian worship. Countless times in the Old Testament, God called on his people to remember through feasts and observances. And over 50 times in the New Testament, we're called upon to remember. I read a statement recently attributed to the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, uh, where he implies that the problem with people is that we spend our entire lives waiting getting ready for something else or thinking we're getting ready for something else, watching for something to happen. We never actually become people of action. We never take the step. We worry about what living like this might really cost us. But Paul was clear that Titus must instruct the saints to be careful to devote themselves to good works. He was insistent that we move past our fear and beyond our overly cautious and calculating mindsets and step into obedience. As a monk I read by the name of Albert Holtz says, the rule of Christ makes demands on me every day. In the eyes of people he puts on my path, it calls to me in the voice of a friend who needs me to act out of selfless love and it challenges me in the quiet insistence of my conscience and in the uncompromising words of the scriptures. You might ask, as one of my daughters did a few years ago, how will I know that I've grown in my faith, that I'll be as faithful as he wants me to be a year from now? Beloved, we can spend another year pondering this question, or we can purpose to yield to his rule today and to lean into him, to repent when we slip or stray, and then do this again tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after that. And you string 365 of those together, and you will find 
that the one who has begun a good work in you has been faithful to accomplish this in you a year from now. When considering adding rules for life that makes us careful to devote ourselves to good works, ask yourself, who am I depending on? If it's myself or the Lord Jesus in his energy, then ask yourself, what do I do and who or what do I turn to when I fall? Myself or the Lord Jesus who always receives and restores me? We strive to live this way in all of the energy and the strength that he provides. And we do these things not to earn merit or to be accepted or to be good people, but because we have bent the knee to the lordship of Christ and have been transformed to carry out his work until all things are under his feet. This is the guardrail that protects us from moralism and legalism and even apostasy. So let's make something of 2022. Not because everything gets better or goes our way, but because we are leaning into Jesus more and more. And as we remember together this morning around the Lord's table, let's believe more in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Let's cling more tightly to the hope of the resurrection. And let's receive more of the grace that we need to obey his rule day by day. Stations are located on both sides of the platform. And there is a self-service table in the back. There are options for you to dip bread into the juice or the wine. There are also some prepackaged elements um, on the tables. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said, remember me and share this meal with each other. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Beloved, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we declare the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain a rock of refuge for us always. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.